It's time to do Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Uh, let's bring him up on the line. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I, I can't believe they let uh, Adam out of the studio for a, any kind of a vacation. It's an outreach. <laughs> I know, I agree. And actually, Adam is one of those guys who hates the idea of taking time off. <laughs> uh, he, he wants to be here every single day, and we kind of have to make him leave the building every once in a while just to take a break. So uh, I'm glad he's taking a break, and we look forward to having him back, though, on Tuesday when he's well-rested after a, a long, long weekend. Uh, but one of the nice things for me when I get to fill in for Adam is I get to talk to you. I always enjoy our Legally Speaking segments, and we've got a lot to cover today, and I'm happy to see that you have ICBC on the mind, because that's been in the news quite a bit this week, the uh, the BC Liberal Party with some campaign promises to break the monopoly at ICBC. In the ads you're probably hearing on the radio and elsewhere, there's a lot of uh, BC Liberals slamming this whole idea of the, the no-fault insurance that we're all going to be living under with ICBC. So with that in mind, you're taking a look into that as our first story. Yes, uh, and I must say I've been happy to see that there has been some debate and discussion about the uh, wisdom of the proposed uh, changes. Uh, I've been watching that uh, uh, that issue uh, carefully for a uh, since it was uh, proposed, uh, largely from I must say a, a fairness perspective. Um, I'm not a lawyer who does ICBC cases. I'm a criminal lawyer, uh, but I certainly see lots of people who are in the justice system who are dealing with. Um, ICBC and related issues, and so I've watched with interest uh, what's been um, suggested. Um, and the, the the broad thrust of it is that the uh, the NDP uh, has proposed that we move to a, a system which would uh, be described as a no-fault system uh, and to maintain ICBC's monopoly over insurance in the province. Um, and the essential idea with a, a no-fault scheme is that um, unlike our current scheme, uh, which is based on who is uh, who was negligent or who caused an accident, the idea is that we could save money um, if we don't spend any time trying to figure out um, who was responsible for an accident, right? Uh, currently, if there's an accident, one of the issues that might well uh, go to court to be determined would be, well, who caused it, right? Yeah. Was, was somebody careless? Did they drive through the red light? Uh, uh, were they not looking? Uh, what, what was going on here? What what caused this? Um, and uh, a large part of the concept would be, well, let's just not spend any time worrying about who caused the accident, uh, and we'll just uh, uh, move on to uh, paying the hospital bills and so on for people who might have been injured. Um, and the idea there is that we would save on uh, expenses determining who uh, caused it. Now, there are of course, legitimate uh, criticisms of that. Many people would say, look, uh, it's not fair that somebody who's uh, careless or or who caused an accident should be treated the same way as somebody who is innocently um, injured in it. But that's the nature of the proposal. Now, there's another important uh, aspect to what's been um, suggested by way of uh, changes by the current government uh, in terms of how disputes would be settled, right? Currently, uh, if somebody were to have a, a dispute with uh, ICBC's determination, for example, of you know who was responsible for an accident, or uh, you know how much should be paid to fix their car, or for uh, you know lost wages, or whatever it might be, if there was a disagreement, a person would be entitled to go to uh, court. 
to have a judge decide uh, whether, you know, who was responsible for the accident or what would be the fair amount of uh, compensation that uh, for whatever loss was suffered. Uh, and what has been proposed as part, part of this no-fault system is that people would no longer be allowed to go to, a, uh, go to court to ask a judge to uh, make a decision or overrule what ICBC uh, thinks should happen. Uh, and the current government has pointed to that as a way to save money, right? They say courts are expensive, and couldn't we save money if we don't let people go there any longer? And what they have suggested as an alternative uh, is using a, a body called the Civil Resolution Tribunal, and that's uh, an organization which has existed for some time in B.C. It was originally conceived to deal with very small small claims issues or, or uh, other issues like uh, strata disputes. You know, let's say somebody's having some argument with their strata about, you know, the barbecue on the deck or whatever it might be. The idea was to create this sort of online kind of PayPal-esque resolution system to deal with those kind of issues. Uh, and for those things, it's probably not an inappropriate sort of level of uh, adjudication, right? If somebody's having a fight over whether they should be permitted a barbecue on their deck in their strata uh, or having some fight over some, you know, $500 fence dispute, uh, that seems like not a bad way to approach it. Uh, but what the government has already started to do, and they did this starting back uh, last year, is they started to make the Civil Resolution Tribunal uh, responsible for uh, dealing with disputes concerning ICBC. And as part of the no-fault suggestion, um, they would be, for many disputes, the only place somebody would be able to go if they had a disagreement with how ICBC was treating them, right? Currently, you could go to a court, uh, but the government wants to, to save money, require that any if you don't like what ICBC's uh, decided about your case, this would be the only place you could go. Um, and uh, that caused me, one of the things I must say I enjoy about doing this show is it, uh, it prompts me every week to go and have a look at uh, recent decisions uh, to see what courts and others are, are, are doing, right? It's a good, uh, healthy, uh, professional thing to do. Uh, and so I noticed in doing that this week, uh, it caused me to have a look at um, a, a number of decisions that are now showing up from this civil resolution tribunal dealing with disputes concerning ICBC. Um, and the, uh, I should say, there's a principled concern about whether that tribunal is an appropriate um, way to resolve disputes a person might have with uh, ICBC. And the reason for that is that unlike with judges who are independent of government and who are appointed until they're 75, right, they can't be fired if you don't like a decision they make, the people who are on the civil, civil resolution tribunal making decisions are only appointed on short-term contracts by the government, uh, two to four years. Um, and the concern that arises is you've got um, a group of people whose job depends on the government making decisions where there's a dispute between the government-owned monopoly insurance company and the individual. Uh, and so there would be a, a basis as a matter of principle to be concerned about whether that kind of a body would be genuinely fair and independent, right? When you've got uh, the government owns ICBC and they're also appointing the people who in some cases will be the only arbiter of a dispute with ICBC. 
And that caused me to have a look at um, uh, how decisions are currently being made in cases uh, that uh, are now going to this civil resolution tribunal. Okay. And I looked at decisions that they had made. Um, I went back to the beginning of July and just had a look at uh, the outcome of disputes that people brought to the Civil Resolution Tribunal for cases that they can currently decide where a person had a dispute with ICBC. And uh, you can now look those up. There's a, uh, a site called Canly, uh, which is uh, a free uh, database of court decisions, and these Civil Resolution Tribunal decisions are also now all reported there. Uh, and so I looked up what was the outcome when somebody went and had a dispute with ICBC and went to this civil resolution tribunal with members that are appointed by the government in that way. Um, and the result between July and when I looked at it yesterday, I found 30 decisions where ICBC was being, where somebody was making a claim against ICBC and took it to that tribunal uh, for a determination. And of those 30, in 27 of them, the claim was dismissed, and people only succeeded in three of them. So the, the outcome where people took cases to this civil resolution tribunal when they had a dispute with ICBC, at least for that period of time, the outcome was 27 to 3 in favor of ICBC. Hmm. And now there could be a variety of reasons for that. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, like, it could just be they were ridiculous claims, but I guess, that, you know, you looked into it, I'm sure. No, that's true, right? And each one would have to be decided on its merit. But I can tell you that's a very different outcome from what you would see if you looked at court decisions involving ICBC as a defendant. You, you do not see a, a pattern which is so completely lopsided. Okay. Uh, and it was also of interest because there was actually a, a case uh, that went before the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Uh, in, it was decided on April 21st. And in that case... Uh, the uh, person who is, again, having a dispute with ICBC uh, complained that uh, the adjudicator couldn't uh, be perceived to be independent. It was, the argument was there was a reasonable apprehension of bias because they were appointed by the government. ICBC is owned by the government, right? And the right. argument was, look, there just isn't a reasonable perception of independence there. Um, and... The adjudicator who decided that, who's one of these people who works on contract for the Civil Resolution Tribunal, rejected the argument and said this, said, further I find that recusing myself on the basis that the statutory appointment process gives rise to a reasonable apprehension of bias would frustrate the tribunal's ability to discharge its statutory mandate as every tribunal member would be effectively be excluded from deciding cases uh, within the tribunal's exclusive jurisdiction. Now, it's a little bit of a legal mouthful. Yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> I'll need some translation there. Basically, it's saying, if I find myself to be biased because I'm appointed by the government on a short-term contract, and this is a dispute involving the government-owned insurance company, all of the members of the, this tribunal will be biased or have a reasonable perception of bias for the same reason. And therefore, we couldn't hear these cases. And I must say, that's a little bit of circular reasoning, right? Uh, and <laughs> Yeah, we're not, I'm not saying that I'm not biased. I'm just <laughs> saying that, you know, look at everybody else, too. Right. If, we, if I found that, we'd all be biased for the same reason. Uh, and I should say this. When, a, when there's a decision being made about whether there's a bias in place, it's not necessarily an argument that the individual person who's on some short-term contract is necessarily themselves biased. But... 
it would be analyzed from the perspective of whether there would be a reasonable apprehension of bias. So somebody's fully informed as to what's going on here and how these people are appointed and what they're doing. Would you have a reasonable perception uh, that they are not independent? Uh, and the concern there is, as I've said, you've got short-term contracts appointed by the government making decisions where the government's monopoly insurance companies owned entirely by the government is one of the parties. Um, and so that on its own would be, I think, a, a reasonable cause for concern about whether that's a, a fair and appropriate way to address those kind of disputes. And then while each individual decision, of course, would be on its merits, and it could be that uh, just the overwhelming number of cases had no merit, um, the, the, in fact, the outcome of decisions where somebody is claiming uh, that ICBC was wrong or didn't compensate them properly, when the result of that, at least uh, for the last few months, is 27 to 3, it might cause you to be more concerned about whether uh, what is going on here does have a reasonable perception of being fair and unbiased. And if the proposal for no-fault, uh, monopoly no-fault insurance is implemented, in many cases it would mean that if you disagreed with how ICBC was treating you, uh, your only remedy would be to this civil resolution tribunal uh, with people who are all appointed by the government on these short-term contracts. Uh, and so I think all of that background and what we can see and how decisions are currently being made um, should at least be a cause for concern about whether what is being suggested would be fair to people. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, really got to be the bottom line. You, you can debate about whether you think uh, no fault is a good idea, right? The idea of not caring about who caused the accident. But at the end of it, if there's a, a dispute about whether somebody's be, being treated um, fairly, um, it uh, should be that a person's able to go to an independent decision maker uh, whose uh, job uh, isn't uh, dependent uh, on, frankly, one of the parties to the dispute. Um, that uh, that's why we have independent uh, judges and why we don't have uh, judges that are only a judge for a short time if the government continues to <laughs> like them, right? Yeah, you, yeah. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't feel too comfortable if you thought, you know, hey, that judge is you know, looking to get uh, his, uh, his or her uh, position renewed next month and I've got to go there and make some argument that the government hasn't treated me fairly. And so... Uh, whatever is whatever happens in terms of the whether we should have uh, a no-fault system or not a no-fault system, whatever system we have uh, ought to be fair, and there ought to be a mechanism for people to uh, have a uh, an independent uh, decision maker resolving disputes, and the independent decision maker needs to have appear to be, <laughs> in fact, independent, uh, and so given the uh, given how it's currently working and the outcome that we can see, and anyone's free to go and look at the decisions if they wish, um, I think there's real reason to be concerned about uh, what has been happening uh, and indeed uh, what has been suggested in the future that would expand that.
This is Legally Speaking with lawyer Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Uh, thank you so much for taking us through this look at ICBC and the no-fault insurance model we might be moving towards and some of the dispute resolution questions that come out of it. Uh, with it being in the news so much this week, with it becoming a, a campaign issue for, for different parties, uh, it's good to kind of get a, a good look at some of what the issues are. We're late for our break, and we do have another story we want to cover, Michael, so we should try to leave at least a few minutes for this. Uh, a first-degree murder conviction overturned on appeal in bc with an interesting story behind it we'll talk about that next we have legally speaking going on right now with michael mulligan a barrister and solicitor with mulligan defense lawyers and michael i'm sorry we only have five minutes left to try and pack in what sounds like a really interesting next story uh what do you got for us Sure, I think I can probably sum it up in that. Uh, so I thought this was just a really interesting fact pattern, and there's, I think, uh, uh, an interesting legal issue that people should be aware of. And, and so this was a case of a fellow who was convicted of first-degree murder, uh, and uh, he had a trial where there was a hung jury, uh, and then there was another trial, and he was convicted, which was ultimately uh, just overturned by the Court of Appeal. Uh, but uh, the fact pattern involved... Um, a circumstantial case of first-degree murder, uh, and one of the really interesting issues was what is a jury supposed to do uh, with a, a, a statement by an accused person where they don't believe it? Uh, can that be used as a basis to convict somebody of murder? Uh, and here's the fact pattern, right? Here's the nutshell. So this fellow was uh, out uh, on a camping trip with his wife. Uh, and they were uh, taking a uh, early morning, morning uh, boat ride in a small zodiac fishing. Uh, and uh, it's clear that uh, the uh, wife of the accused fell overboard and died of drowning. Uh, the, uh, the husband uh, provided a statement to the police describing what he said happened. Uh, and the Crown's theory of the case was that the, in part at least, that the uh, statement was so unbelievable uh, that uh, it ought to uh, be seen uh, as evidence that he was intentionally fabricating a story, and on that basis, uh, uh, he should be convicted of murder. So here's the story for listeners. So the story that the, uh, the man told is he said, we were in a boat on the Zodiac on a hot day. He was, on his evidence, driving the boat at the back, fishing with two rods out. He claimed he heard a splash and that his wife fell into the uh, lake holding a sun umbrella, uh, that she couldn't swim. He claimed that he uh, had a, uh, he described a stupid fisherman's instinct and rather than immediately stopping, rolled in one of the reels uh, of the fishing rod that was out uh, and then uh, realized he was getting too far away from her, threw the other rod in the water, turned around, uh, and then uh, was unsuccessful to pulling her out of the water as a result of being too large and heavy to dive down to rescue her. He claimed he went to shore, got a rock, went out and eventually managed to pull her up, but was uh, too late and he was unable to revive her. That was the story he told. Sorry, why did he need a rock? He, well, he said he was unable to dive down to the bottom of the lake to rescue her. He oh, was, he needed the uh, weight to pull him down. He needed the weight. Oh, okay. He said he was he's six foot seven and four hundred pounds, and he said I just couldn't dive down. Gotcha. Okay, I'm following now. So the the crown said this is so unbelievable. Uh, this story, uh, and also added to that, they had uh, renewed life insurance on each other a short time uh, before this event. The crown argued that. The jury ought to not only reject this evidence, uh, but should find that it was an intentional fabrication. Uh, 
Uh, and that's the interesting little legal point, or one of them. And the idea there is that uh, if somebody, an accused person, gives some version of events, you know, I'm innocent, I didn't do it, uh, the starting point would be if a jury or a judge doesn't believe them when they say I didn't do it or something else happened, that isn't necessarily evidence that they are guilty, right? It's just, well, you just didn't believe this explanation. Yeah. Uh, but if you can prove that something was an intentional fabrication, uh, that might be uh, evidence that could be relied upon to show the person was uh, guilty and uh, saying things to uh, avoid being convicted. Um, here, a few other interesting little tidbits of evidence included the fact that a year after the event, police went back and they dove down and found, indeed, a sun umbrella and a fishing rod at the bottom of the lake. Uh, and ultimately, the Court of Appeal found that uh, this wasn't the sort of uh, story which was so inherently uh, untrue, right? Like the, one of the examples given was if somebody said, you know, aliens pushed my wife into the lake. Uh, you might say, well, that's just obviously fabricated, and we can conclude that so. Uh, the Court of Appeal found that the, there's nothing in this story, even though you might say, well, I, you know, I don't believe somebody would reel in the fishing rod, or, you know, I don't believe that you would need to go get a rock to dive down, or whatever it might be, that this wasn't the sort of statement which was so obviously fabricated that it could have been used to show that the person must have been guilty. Uh, and so on that basis and some others, uh, the Court of Appeal found that the uh, the jury verdict of guilty uh, could not stand, uh, and it will be for the uh, Crown to decide whether they wish to try uh, prosecuting this man uh, a third time uh, on this uh, circumstantial fact pattern for what they allege was uh, uh, a murder of his wife. All right. doesn't necessarily mean he didn't do it, but you can't convict him based on the fact that his story seemed silly. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I think that's the essence of it. Even if you think the story is silly and you reject it... You still need that proof. That doesn't necessarily mean the person's guilty, right? <laughs> uh, what a fascinating story, uh, and, and some interesting legal thoughts into it. Uh, I'm afraid we're right at the time with 10 seconds left. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. He's here at this time every Thursday for Legally Speaking, and I look forward to the next edition. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.